Good morning. Grace and peace to you. Good to see everyone. Thank you for teaching me. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? Singing and making melody with your heart. God gives us singing so we can express in some way what is in our heart already. Mind and spirit. Thank you, Don, for the songs. Turn to 1 Peter 3. We'll start there. Give you a little background, first of all. The scriptures uh, use numerous kinds of figures of speech, just like we do in our language, analogies, allegories, parables, similes and metaphors, and so forth, to give a rich and deep meaning of the Word of God to us, things that we can easily remember. This lesson is a figure of speech called type and antitype. And some of you may have heard of that and some of you not, and that's why I'm going to give a very brief description of that from 1 Peter 3.18, where Peter references the flood of Noah and baptism as type and antitype. He says, for Christ also died for sin, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Type and antitype. A type is something that existed previously, and an antitype that comes later, and they both reflect one another, Uh, and they are compared and contrasted. Here, in fact, in the New King James, I think it uses the word antitype, doesn't it? And uh, King James says a like figure. This simply says corresponding, which I, I don't like that as well as saying that it is an antitype, because that's what it is. And here's what Peter is saying. Way back in the days of Noah, when God brought the flood on the earth, It was the flood of water that removed the wickedness of men, removed evil man from the earth in order for the earth to be cleansed and Noah and his family to start over. All right? That was the type. Now, today, and when we are baptized into Christ, our sin is removed not by the water, as he says. It's not the washing of water. It's by the blood of Christ through his death and resurrection that our sin is removed. All right, and we can be clean and have a new life. So that's the type and the antitype, the type of thing that we're talking about here today. And this is one of the best illustrations of it, and they're found all throughout Scripture. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 6, as we're going to talk about, as Don said, and you can see there on your little paper, from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14. Matt, did you all get one of those pick sheets? 
Would you see that Matt gets that? Mike's going to get... No, you came in a little bit late. All right. Thank you. All right, 2 Corinthians 6.14. We're talking about the temple of God. Do not be bound together with unbelievers... For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, In particular, in the Corinthian letters, Paul deals with this idea of the temple of God. He references it at least three times. And uh, I I think it's because the Corinthians still struggled with idol worship. And there were so many temples there in Corinth, and they were still uh, involved and had the problem with eating the meat offered to idols and didn't know where they could do that or not. And some of them, uh, I think, were even still going to the temple prostitutes. They had a hard time breaking themselves of that old lifestyle. And so Paul addresses this idea of who is the temple of God. And he says, we are the temple of the living God. And notice he talks about the relationship there He'll dwell in them, walk among them. He'll be a father to us. He'll be sons and daughters and so forth. And so he's expressing that and saying, we are now the temple of God. So I want to do a type and a type with this, understanding we are the temple of God. And we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Now, we're not going to reference the Old Testament because if I did that, Helen would not get her lunch today for sure. So, and most of you are familiar with the Old Testament. If not, you can find us in the book of Exodus, mostly. But we're going to explain this, and we're going to see this type and antitype. Now, under the law of Moses, uh, Moses was given instruction there on Mount Sinai about a tabernacle that was to be built for the people uh, that they would take with them in the wilderness. It was a portable sanctuary or temple. And uh, he was given specific instructions, and they built it there while they were camped around Mount Sinai. Uh, and they took it with them then for, for the worship of God. And later on, that tabernacle or tent, uh, it was used as a pattern when Solomon built a temple. It was very similar, except he built a, a structure there in Jerusalem. So I'm very briefly going to describe this tabernacle that Moses uh, was instructed to build there. First of all, it was in an enclosure, okay? There was a portable wall outside that protected this tent. It kept it separate from the rest of the people from the camp. It separated the common from the uncommon. And uh, I, I looked this up. This whole arrangement was not very big. Uh, the outside court was only about 150 feet by 75 feet, depending on your measurement of the cubit. There are different cubits. So this would easily fit within a football field. 
And the actual sanctuary itself, the, the tabernacle or tent, was only about 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. So it would fit inside this auditorium. I'm, I know it would fit this way. Is this longer than 45 feet? I think it is. It would fit inside here. So it was not that big. But it had the, had the outer courtyard with a wall, a portable wall, that was separated the whole thing uh, from everything outside. Okay, inside the tabernacle itself, there were two compartments or two chambers. There was the Holy of Holies where, where you came in first, and then only the priests were allowed to go in there. And then there was the most holy place. And so I'm going to try to lay this out with, for us to see this inside here. Okay? This would be like we're in the holy place. And the holy of holies would be behind this curtain here. And there was a curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place. In the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant of God, which had the mercy seat, the cherubim on it, had the law of Moses, a copy of the law of Moses in it, and so forth. And that was where the presence of God was, as is often termed the Shekinah glory. When God came down and says his glory filled the tabernacle, that's where the glory was, over the mercy seat between the cherubim. And the only person allowed in the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and that was on one day a year. In the holy place, the other priests came in and did their duties. And they came in daily because there was all kinds of things they needed to do, and we're going to touch on them. Okay, in this holy place, there were basically three items. Over here on this side, there was a table with the showbread or the bread of the presence. It was arranged in two rows of six, one representing each tribe of Israel. And only the priests were allowed to eat that, and that bread had to be renewed every Sabbath day. Over on this side was, some of you are familiar with the Jewish menorah. be something similar to that. It was a lampstand, very ornate, made of gold, with oil lamps, made look like a branch of a bush, with flowers and cups on it. And they had all these oil lamps which they kept lit all the time. So they had this light for inside when they came in to do their duties. And then right up against this curtain was the altar of incense. Which the priests burned incense and they had to burn that incense at least once a day before God. And that was a special incense that... God gave them a recipe for it, if you will, uh, what uh, ingredients were supposed to go in it, and nobody else could make that and use it for anything else, and it could only be burned in the, temp in the tabernacle on that altar for God to smell. Okay? Outside the temple, or outside the tabernacle, keep calling it the temple, there was the altar where the, the people would bring their sacrifices to be offered. And that's where the priests would minister outside and the animals would be killed 
and skinned and you know whatever part was to be burned was burned and some of it was given to the priest there were all kind of sacrifices for sin offering burn offering free will offerings or daily offerings the priests were kept busy sacrificing animals all the time in front of the tabernacle and then we talk about the priests priests very briefly they were appointed from the tribe of Levi the family of Aaron and they were the only ones that were to do these kinds of duties, especially to come into the holy place and then the high priest and the most holy. I know that the tribe of Levi, some of the Levites helped outside with some of the uh, work that had to be done, but it was the priests who actually offered the sacrifices, uh, burned the incense, kept the oil lamps lit, and so forth and so on. Uh, it, it was their duty. Plus, they were also the ones to whom the people would come and they, if they had questions about the law. The priests were supposed to know the law and be teachers of the law, and if people had questions, they would come to the priests and say, you know, what about this or what about that? And they were also the ones who uh, maintained a careful eye and watch on ceremonial uncleanness. Uh, when people... Uh, um, touched a dead animal or associated with anything dead, they had to be uh, cleansed of that. People uh, developed leprosy or some kind of skin disease. They had to go to the priest and get it checked out. Sometimes they had to be sent outside the camp to be clean before they could become clean. All kind of rules and so forth. You can read a lot of those in Leviticus and even Numbers. So the priests were constantly busy uh, ministering to God and ministering to the people and and uh, showing the ways of God to the people of Israel. So that is a brief rundown of the tabernacle and the priestly system, okay? But it is very much detailed in the Old Testament. And so, uh, you know, that was the focus of Israel's worship, and, and with that tabernacle there in, uh, in the middle of the camp, and they... The, the tribes camped around that. It was right in the middle of the camp. And then later on in Jerusalem, there on the, the, the Temple Mount, you know, there was, if you will, the presence of God. They knew God was among them. God was there, reassured their faith, and that they were the people of God, and God would, would never uh, desert them. That was, uh, that was the purpose of that. And it, the God was the center of their life. He was the center of their life. All right. Now we're, that was the type. Now we're going to do the antitype. Because now, there is no temple structure anywhere, is there? That's gone. But what does Paul assert in 2 Corinthians? We are the temple of the living God. All right? We are. So how does this work? Let's go to John 17. Now you, now you have to do a little work now. As you recall, the tabernacle was in an enclosure to separate the, the holy from the common. Okay? People just couldn't, anybody just couldn't go in there. What of the church? What of the temple of God today? John 17, 13. 
But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full themselves. I've given them your word, and the, word is, the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. There's a separation. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. It's God to keep the evil one away from us, and he works to do that. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now notice verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Remember, one of the meanings of the word sanctify is to set apart, to be holy, to be devoted to God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So here we see that today the church is separate from the world, isn't it? And it's set apart by the Word of God. But we who believe in the Word of God and follow the Word of God and take it for our way to salvation, our way to live, the Word of God, of course, going back to John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ Jesus himself, he is in us. We are in Christ and he is in us. And we are separate from the world. And we're to be separate, like Jesus said. I'm going to take them out of the world. You've got, you got work to do in the world. But you are separate from the world. And there is a dividing line. The word of God sets you off. And God protects you from the evil one. 1 Corinthians 3, continuing. We had the Ark of the Covenant with the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. God was in the tabernacle, the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know, here's he, he uses the idea again, that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So we have the presence of God dwelling in us, right? The Holy Spirit. Type, antitype. Now we have the very presence of God dwelling in us, and he says, you are holy. You are set apart from the rest of the world, from the sinful world. God dwells in you. This ought to start making us think a little bit, maybe giving us a little chill or two. Because, you know, this is the reality of life right now. This is the reality of spiritual life. This is the way God sees it. There's no longer a structure anywhere. This is the structure the temple of God, the people of God, that's what we are now. God dwells in you. All right. Some of your minds are racing ahead. I can tell that already. Let's go back to 1 Peter 2. Talk about the priests. We just talked about the priests of the family of uh, Levi and... Uh, than the family of Aaron. 
We've read this before, but now within the context of this lesson, 1 Peter 2, 4. Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There we are. Type and a type. No longer a Levitical priesthood. But now there is a new priesthood. Those who are in Christ are priests to offer up these kinds of sacrifices. We have a work to do before God. Praise and worship, good works, gifts, all for his glory. Detailed in other places, we don't have time to go there. But what we do in the name of Christ, we are, we are serving as priests because we serve him. And all this is offered up as sacrifice to him. He's our God. All right, Romans 12. Following along with this priestly idea, there was the altar outside uh, of the structure where the sacrifices were made. What of the church? We know we read in the book of Hebrews about uh, animals, uh, blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Christ Jesus offered himself, as we observe, uh, in his death and the giving of his body and blood for our sin. But there's still sacrifices to be offered. We just saw that there in 1 Peter. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So these are the kinds of sacrifices that we offer, even our own bodies, in work, in service, in sweat, in tears, in prayer, in giving, in helping people, anything we do in the service of God, offering our bodies, giving ourselves. Jesus said in another place, you've got to take up your own cross, you've got to lose your life. It's the same idea. Priest to God. So there were sacrifices back then, anatype, we sacrifice ourselves for God's glory. Okay, let's go to John 6. And here, I got two scriptures here on this one about the showbread or the bread of the presence. And I wasn't sure which one was... Put them both out here, and maybe I can get some feedback from you all. Which one best fits this picture? The showbread was only for the priests. John 6, 31. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and as written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now there's that picture that for the church today, Jesus is the bread of life, the spiritual bread. We feed on him. Uh, Not only the fact that, you know, this is his hymn here on the page of scripture, and we follow what he says, but he's our life because he gave his life for us. He died for us so that we might live, all right? So we have faith in him in that, re- that way. And so in that way, he's our life. And we are the ones who, who follow him. And so we, we draw life from Jesus. He is our bread, the bread of life. But then, of course, you got Matthew 26 there. We can go back. Uh, you're all familiar with this, where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And I'm thinking maybe this is a better antitype to the, to the bread of the presence. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And I can see both of those scriptures being appropriate to contrast with the bread of the presence that was in the tabernacle. Because only those who are in Christ, only those who are priests to God, are to eat of the Lord's Supper. Lest a person eat and drink damnation to themselves. So there's a Another beautiful contrast, and, and as we're right in the middle of this, we understand you know, this was always God's design. Another thing that did not happen by chance, somebody just kind of figured it out and reapplied the New Testament scriptures to the old. This was God's design from the beginning. And we should just humble ourselves and see the glory of God and his wisdom in all of these things. So, Jesus, the word of God, is our life. We remember him. We feed on him. He is our bread of life. Our next thought from Revelation 8. The altar of incense was there in the tabernacle before the the curtain. Incense was burned there every day, maybe more than once. They had their appointed times to burn incense. Some of these things aren't even detailed in Scripture. Uh, Revelation 8 and 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And to see maybe a better depiction of this, I was going to go to Luke 1, when Zechariah was in the temple there, 
when he received a visit from the angel which told him about his son John the Baptist who was to be born. That was the time of the burning of incense. He went in to burn incense and all the people were outside in prayer. And so the association of the burning of incense in prayer is prevalent in scripture. And so that's what we see here with the altar of incense that we as people today offer up prayers to God continuously. That's the type and the antitype. We pray to God and, you know, God, I've said before, God loves to hear from us. He wants to hear from us. Whether it's praise or thank, thanksgiving to him for all he's done or even our requests, our needs, he's our heavenly father. He wants to hear from us. And uh, we, just, we just need to remember that and not, not hesitate and just develop that life of prayer to always be sending up prayers to God. And finally, Matthew 5. We have over here the lampstand, the light. You can already go to a couple scriptures, I'm sure. This is the one I chose. What of the church? Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the light of Christ, who he said is the light of the world when he was on the earth, is to shine through us the temple in the temple of God. The light of truth, the light of the gospel, the light of God's love. We are the light of the world. You are, we are, the temple of the living God. That's the way it is. That's a fact, Jack, as they say. And we need to accept that and see that. God's design for today. We are the temple of God. We offer up the prayers. We offer up the sacrifices. We are the light of the world. We minister to God. We show the world what it's like to serve Jesus Christ. This is why we always say we need to be not only sober, but also full of joy. Knowing that we have a home, we have a future, God is with us, he's, gonna, he's promised to be with us in all of our trials and troubles, and he's made these great promises to us. Type and antitype, the tabernacle and the temple of the living God. Let us, as we would say, go forth to really be the temple of God, to be God's people in the world. Out in the world, but not of the world. Rejoicing in all of God's goodness. Thank you for being patient this morning with that lesson, and I pray that 
you can take that and build on it, reflect on it, take some of those scriptures and just see the great gift that God has given to us now as his people. If anyone here this morning is in need of prayer, just talked a little bit about prayer, we have that great blessing to be able to pray to God in the name of Christ Jesus. Those who are his. And if you need prayer this morning for any reason, you're struggling in, in life, temptations, those kind of things, or uh, other situations you'd like for God to intervene in your life, we're here, we can pray with you and pray for you. If you'd like to become a part of this temple of God, this body of Christ, the group of the saved called the church, we can assist you in that obedience as well. Um, be baptized into Christ, maybe just like more knowledge about what you need to do, what is required of you. So always I say, if you don't want to come forward, catch me on the way out, or Mike, or Mike, or Dawn, and uh, we'll be glad to talk with you at any time. If you want to respond this morning, please come while Brother Dawn leads us.